You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest, Torkel Lausen. He was a member of the Belkinge Street Gang in Denmark through the 1980s. The Belkinge Street Gang was a core of leftist organizations that had legal and illegal methods, such as robbing banks, to help third world struggles all over Africa and the Middle East. So, Torkel, what brought you into political activism? Well, like so many others, it was 68, which brought me into politics at that time. I was very young, and and actually it was with the spirit of 68, and especially the Vietnam War, which brought me into politics and liberation movements in general, also in Middle East and in Southern Africa also. So it was this influence which brought me into politics. And it was a friend at that time. I was on a boarding school, and it was a friend in the boarding school who introduced me to the world of politics. So, yeah, that's actually very interesting. So you, so you went to a boarding school, and there you were introduced to the communist Arbeidskreis, which is a study group, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was the new left, and it was kind of the Maoist direction, which I was uh, introduced to at that time, and it was around 68, uh, 69 in this school, and it was a special political group, which I was uh, introduced to, which was a splitter out of the Danish uh, Communist Party, which was Moscow-orientated, so it it was a Chinese uh, splitter out of the Danish Communist Party, which I uh, later joined this uh, small group. It was a rather small group. It was maybe only between 25 and 50 people, but nearly all of them were full-time professionals, so they were very, it was a very dedicated group. Okay, um, one theory that your group came up with is parasite state theory. What exactly is parasite state theory? Well, the, the name is after uh, actually after idea in Lenin's book, uh, Imperialism as the Highest State of, of the Capitalism, or rather, it's from uh, it's uh, yeah, and, and uh, he, he introduced the concept that a group of states in Europe was a kind of parasite state which got profits from uh, imperialism and not only for the capitalists but also part of, of the working class got part of the, this uh, profit in, in form of a higher wage and a state and a kind of a, a welfare state. And also we experienced that most of us were also working on shipyards and uh, machine factories and, and so on and discussed with workers and tried to convince them about uh, socialism and communism. And they were not very interested. They were, of course, interested in getting a higher wage and not work so much and better living conditions and, and, and so on. But they were not very interested actually in socialism and, and such and also the solidarity with the vietnam war was very limited denmark was dominated by the social democratic party which at that time uh, supported the u.s uh, in the vietnam war that's actually very interesting because i noticed that same trend with so-called left in the u.s where a lot of them have taken the Western worldview. And so they think the Western worldview is the best worldview. And so we don't see a lot of solidarity with the third world or even understanding. And do you have any advice on how to raise consciousness among the youth uh, on just that issue alone? Well, I don't think that that it's not a question of, of pedagogy. It's a question of of the social uh, situation, actually. But I, I, I would like to add something about how Denmark got into this parasite state. Absolutely. Because, because it has also something to do with the colonialism. How Denmark 
got its way into uh, imperialism. Because uh, actually Denmark also had colonies in the 16th and 17th century. What is now called the Virgin Islands, St. Croix, St. Thomas and, and St. John in the Caribbean, was uh, Danish colonies producing sugar and tobacco and uh, this kind of stuff. So we had uh, colonies and we had also, way back, we had also colonies in, in the western part of uh, India trading colonies and we had colonies also in uh, Ghana um, which was trading stations where where Danish ships transported slaves from uh, the Gold Coast in West Africa and to the Caribbeans. Denmark was a very big uh, slave transporter and Danish maritime fleet was very big at uh, that time. It was the third or fourth biggest maritime transporter in the time. Scandinavian ships, they uh, brought tea from China. One third of all the tea which was transported from China to England and to Europe was actually transported on Danish and Swedish uh, vessels. So. Also, in trade, Denmark and Sweden was uh, very important in the, in the colonial times. I'm glad you brought that up because most people don't understand it, especially in America. So, so Denmark was um, Danish people or Danish companies profited from the slave trade because they were transporting and they were also involved in shipping tea from China. and. So basically what you're saying is a a lot of the profits made in Denmark and the wealth was a beneficiary of colonialism, right? Sure, sure, sure. And actually, it was the start of the Danish bourgeoisie was this trading bourgeoisie, which owned these vessels and uh, had colonial link. If you visit Copenhagen today, the most beautiful parts along the palaces was financed by this colonial uh, trade. A whole big part of the city is financed by this colonial trade. And later on, you know, Denmark, it's not uh, primarily an industrial society. It's a very much a, a farming society with a lot of, we have a lot of uh, meat industry with uh, especially uh, pigs. And this whole farming industry was also the race of this class of farmers was also connected to uh, colonialism because the race in, in Danish agriculture was connected to the race of the English Empire, the British Empire, because we sold the meat and butter and eggs and corn and beef to the uh, English market. And it was the biggest buyer of Danish uh, products. So we was a kind of a subcontractor to British uh, colonialism. And this was the race of the Danish uh, big peasant uh, class around from 1840 to, to 1900. There, there was this huge Danish export of agricultural products to Britain. The allegiance between the Danish and British was formalized because one of the British princesses married the Danish prince in the 1800s, right? Yeah, maybe. Uh, there, there, there was a Danish king which was called, he was kind of father for all <laughs> the different royalties in Europe. We have also a lot of connections to the, to, to the Russian Tsar uh, and uh, to Germany and to England. So uh, there was a lot of connections uh, there. So what yeah. exactly was Denmark's role during World War One? Denmark was a, a neutral country. And uh, Denmark traded with both, uh, with all the parts uh, in the war and made a lot of money, both uh, trading with England and with Germany. And there was this uh, kind of, uh, they were called gulash, Barons, because they uh, produced prepacked uh, gulas for for the German army, and uh, it was you know all kind of waste and bad meat and uh, all kinds of, <laughs> and and they put it in uh, tins and and sold it to to the Germans and uh, owned a fortune. They were called gulas barons and. At the, at the time, so we, but but it is typical that both Sweden and Denmark tried to 
keep out of all the wars because they could uh, then and use their maritime fleet to trade a lot. And still today, the Danish fleet uh, is huge. We have, there's a firm called Maersk, which are the biggest trader between China and uh, America with containers. So still, uh, Danish maritime fleet are important. When you look at Denmark, it seems there's a little, there's a strong social welfare program that we don't have in the United States. What created the social welfare state in Denmark? Well, actually, it was the world crisis in the 30s. It was the a breakthrough of the, the welfare state because, well, slowly uh, the, the capitalist class has uh, accepted the organizations and the trade union of the working class. There were made a deal in 1901, a general deal between, after a long strike, between the working class organization and, and the capitalists. And the capitalists, they recognized the right of the workers to organize, and they made deals with, with the trade unions and the workers. They recognized the capitalists' rights to organize uh, and lead the work at the factory. And slowly, uh, this uh, cooperation uh, got more and more institutionalized and uh, worked better and, and better. And also, you know, the working class and, and the women later got the right to vote and, and, and so on. So the social democrats got bigger and, and bigger and they got their breakthrough uh, in the 30s where they formed their first governments and uh, started the welfare programs which actually saved the uh, capitalism at the time because they they dragged uh, capitalism out of its uh, crisis by creating work by uh, making houses and uh, big uh, public building programs and, and also trying to regulate currency and rents and so on along the line of the Keynesian's economics. And that uh, was the first step to the welfare state. There was pensions, uh, there was help for people without work, there was insurance and so on. So it was the start of the welfare state in Denmark. Uh, the strength of the trade union was very uh, important uh, for this uh, movement. Okay, so uh, that's actually very interesting to know. But what I'm trying to understand is, during World War II, Denmark got conquered by Germany and... So there was a lot of uh, problem in just trying to resist the German occupation. What happened after, and I actually have written a few articles about the Danish resistance on Dansk Holga. And what happened after World War II? Like what kind of state was Denmark after World War II, after the Germans were defeated? Well, I, I have to make a small correction because Denmark was uh, occupied by Germany in forty. And the first uh, many, many, the first year of the war, this, the Danish government was still uh, functioning and was working together with Germans. Uh, oh, so it was not fully occupied, but it was a collaboration government. Yes, it was a, co a collaboration government up, uh, up until 43, where there was uh, strikes and there was a, a break. And first, in, in in, uh, in 43, the Germans took over the rule of the country. And it was also first at that time that the resistance really began to be uh, stronger. Actually, there was also many Danes who participated and was through, uh, and, and joined the Germans and, and went to the East Front. I would say that the number which supported the Nazi was more or less the same as, as the amount who, of people who went into the, uh, to the resistance. So it was actually only in the last year or something that Denmark became part of the Allied forces. So it was uh, rather late that they did that. But after the war, the Social Democrats came to power again and actually was very strong. Surprisingly, because 
it was the Social Democrats who had worked together with the Germans in the first year, and the communists was leading in the struggle against the Germans. But again, they could not turn this national struggle for national liberation into a struggle for socialism because basically the banks was not interested in socialism. They were more interested in the social democratic line, which was creating a welfare state. So the social democrats actually were the ones who collaborated with the Nazi government, is what you're saying? Yes, yes, yes. Wow, I did not know that. No, but it was Prime Minister Poole, who was the man who who worked together with, and and he acted actually called the resistance for terrorists and the Danish police tried to catch the, the saboteurs or, or, or the resistance uh, people. And there was three or four communists in our parliament and the social democrats, they passed a law which made the communists unlegal. So they actually jailed these uh, members of the parliament um, in the middle of the war and helped the Germans to catch a communist party members in Denmark, and they were imprisoned, and some of them were sent to concentration camps. And, and this is a very bad memory for many people in, in Denmark, that the Social Democrats, this was a break of foundational law that, that you um, imprison members of, of the parliaments because they were elected. <laughs> So uh, this is very embarrassing for the social democrats that they did it during the war. Wow. Um, but I, I guess it served the needs of capital to get rid of the people who were strongest and most militant against capital. And that's, and that's why they were the first who were purged in every country. <laughs> but, but, you know, if it, it, it was a general tendency in, in all Europe that this fear of communism after the defeat of Nazi uh, strengthens the social democrats because uh, they were less evil, you know, for capital, that they had to cooperate with the social democrats and uh, not to avoid uh, what was worse, namely that communists gained power and became uh, stronger. Uh, so and, and this was a general, it was the same also in France and Italy and most of Europe. So it's kind of like a coup. <laughs> and, and, and there was a fear because, you know, uh, Eastern Europe fell into the hands of the Soviet Union and, and especially in, in Italy and in France, the communists were uh, rather strong. So there was a great fear that, that they... they they were very popular and there was a fear that they could gain power. But actually, Chocriati, which was the Italian leader of the communists, was not interested in turning the national struggle into a struggle for socialism. And they were very well aware that it, this was not the possible. They tried it in Greece and other places, in, but, but it was not possible in Western Europe to... And the Chinese, they criticized later, they had criticized that you know, the communist parties in, in Western Europe didn't carry on this national struggle into a struggle for, for socialism in 45, as you know, the Chinese did. But, but it's a critique which I don't think it's right because it was not uh, possible. It was possible in China, but, but it's not possible in uh, Western Europe. And that makes sense. So your group, tried to raise awareness in the working class. And so in the excerpt you sent me, you talk about a letter you sent to... China, uh, maybe. No? Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? Well, then we are back to 68. Mm -hmm. uh, so the year of, of, the, of the 68. And, yes. And, and in that time, you know... Uh, we had uh, relations with Chinese uh, Communist Party. We had actually a rather good uh, relation with the Chinese Communist Party because our group was the first Maoist group in uh, Europe. It was established in, in 64 uh, as the first Chinese-orientated communist group in, in Europe. So we had visited, our chairman had visited uh, China several times and under the cultural uh, revolution and so on. 
but what the Chinese at that time, they had hoped that there will be a kind of global revolution uh, in, in uh, 68, that there will be, and there was a lot of revolutionary groups around that period. If you could read things in all the countries where there were revolutionary groups there, at that time, it looked very optimistic. There was not only in, in, in Vietnam, but there was in, in Cambodia and Laos and the Philippines and Thailand and in uh, India and, and in a lot of Middle East also. And if you go to Africa, there was in the old Portuguese colonies, there were revolutionary movements. And in Southern Africa and Latin America and there was maybe 50 revolutionary struggles going on at uh, that time. And there were also tendencies in Europe. But the Chinese, they exaggerated that. And they uh, also claimed that there was uh, a revolutionary situation in England and France at, uh, at that time. And uh, we write to them that it was not uh, true. There was a movement among young people and sections of the working class, but there was not something like a revolutionary situation or a revolutionary movement at that time. And so the Chinese broke with us in, I think, in 69 or something like that. Uh, we had uh, discussions with the, with the embassy and the, and the Chinese. And, yeah. And then we carried on with our own analysis and our own uh, strategy uh, from there on. What did you start after that? Then we start. Then then we developed our own uh, analysis of what was going on in the world and made our, our own uh, strategy of, uh, uh, of of how to carry out uh, revolutionary uh, work in Western Europe. That's where you came up with the, your group as a whole came up with the parasite state theory, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and basically it, it says that the revolutionary potential is in the third world. Now we call it global south, but at that time, uh, the revolutionary uh, potential is in uh, third world. And it's not in the imperialist country. It's not in Europe, in America, because part of the working class or most of the working class, they benefited from uh, uh, from uh, imperialism in terms of profits and in terms of unequal exchange and, and so on. So they had no objective interest in crossing the imperialist system, whether they, and they had an objective interest in, in crossing uh, uh, imperialism in uh, the third world. That was basically the theory. And so our task was to support the struggle in the third world best uh, we could do. And when they have succeeded in their revolution, they would cut the straws of imperialism and create a, a crisis, in a revolutionary crisis in our part of the world. And then we could uh, resume uh, the struggle in our part uh, of the world. But this was an analysis in, in say, uh, 1970. And actually, it was not an unrealistic analysis at the time. If you go 10 years later, it doesn't match reality. But at the time, it seemed like a reasonable analysis. Tired of the parasite state leeching all your hard-earned dollars? Well, we can't tell you to rob a bank and sign up all your friends, relatives, and every email address you can pull from the folks working in Langley. But if you do, please subscribe to historically.substack.com. There you'll get all our newsletters as well as podcasts every week with professors, radicals, politicians, and radically professing politicians. Once again, check out historically.substack.com. During your Vietnam War activism, there was a pretty strong resistance. So in 1969, you said a movie called The Green Berets was being premiered in a big theater in Copenhagen. A, what was the movie for the younger audience who don't exactly understand who John Wayne is and what his movie was? And also, what did your group do 
that, that was very interesting in order to resist this kind of brainwashing of the Danish audience. <laughs> yeah, but this was a it, it was a great uh, it was a great uh, premiere cinema in the middle of, of Copenhagen, and they were showing this uh, movie about the green barrettes, and it was very very popular. And it turned out to be uh, a struggle between radical left wings who wanted to stop this movie. On the other side, actually, there was motorcycle gangs, health angels uh, groups, which uh, liked the movie very much. So it, it, <laughs> there was a lot of struggle outside the cinema between these motorcycle gangs and radical uh, left-wing groups. And they were quite violent uh, struggles. But we decided to stop the movie. And, and it was very strange because you could buy tickets to the movie, so we buy some tickets and go into the theater. And there we completely held out bottles with uh, stinking acid. It's like, a, you know, it smells like rotten eggs. It's uh, made out of sulfur and other chemicals. You can make uh, like a stink bomb or something, which is very awful. And it was several liters were spilled all over this uh, cinema. So it was completely, you could not stand to be in the room, so they had to, and, and the seats were smashed, and the, the whole cinema was uh, turned upside down, so they had to, to stop the, the movie. And this was a general strategy we had in the beginning that when we made uh, demonstrations and action, they should not be kind of radical, they should not be nice, and they should not be dignified. We, we had the slogan not to be. Many people talk about when you make a demonstration, it, it has to be dignified. It has to be without violence and without and without struggle. And, but we have another concept. The same discussion was also there in in seventeen September nineteen hundred and seventy. There was a, a World Bank meeting, World Bank meeting in Copenhagen. Most of of the left wing they to demonstrate against the World Bank meeting. But our slogan was to stop the, the meeting and not to demonstrate against it. So we attacked the rooms where the meeting was held, tried to attack them. And where the, there was also, at that time, there was not so much security. So there were restaurants where the participants in the World Bank were eating. And, you know, when they drive around in cars, they were not take it so much as today. They went to Tivoli also, our, it, it's a garden here in, in Central Copenhagen. And we could disturb all this arrangement. Uh, we, we didn't manage to stop the conference, but we really tried hard. We even tried to, to burn down the conference hall with petrol bombs and so So this was a strategy which when we had for half a year or a year to try to uh, radicalize this uh, it's ended, it ended around 71 or something like that. Then we changed direction. And then you decided to help the struggle more directly, I guess, in the 1970s. So there was a legal part of it and an underground part of it. So there was a lot of things going on in Mozambique, Angola, and what mm. is now Zimbabwe. Back then it was a white nationalist state called Rhodesia. Can you first talk about the legal ways in which your group helped these struggles in the third world? Yes, at that time, especially in Africa, the liberation movements, they had the responsibility for refugee camps in the neighboring countries. For instance, um, um, the liberation movements in Rhodesia, they have camps in Mozambique. And the liberation movements in Namibia, Swapo, they have camps in Angola and, and, and so on. So they have refugee camps where the liberation movements had the responsibility of the camps. And they were actually kind of base areas also for recruiting people and uh, making organizing people political and so on. So it was not refugee camps uh, as we see it in the Middle East today or in other places. They were very political refugee camps. So we supported the work in these uh, refugee camps with, with uh, clothes and medicine, 
carpets and, and all kinds of uh, equipment, blankets, and, and uh, all this stuff. And this we uh, we uh, collected. And here in, in Denmark, it was easy to collect because we have too much of everything, so we could collect it uh, rather easily. And then we also, at that time, we, we could make a lot of money on fleet market also. So we, we collected things and sold them on fleet markets. And actually, we, we get a lot of money out of that activity also. And um, it was also a way to get new uh, people in the organization and, and to make uh, propaganda for, for the liberation movements and so on. So this was a kind of legal work. Hmm? That is amazing. And so you also had, I guess you guys raised enough money to have a print shops and you made books, pamphlets and yeah, other things yeah, to raise yeah, awareness, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But then there was also an underground movement. What prompted your group to start the underground movement? Yes, it, it was that it, it has a kind of double uh, perspective because uh, it was not actually underground. It was more uh, undercover. We did not go underground. We, we were completely uh, legal people. Uh, but it was kind of making actions uh, undercover and the cover was look like ordinary uh, criminality. So we, we didn't uh, make announcements when we made this kind of action or political statements like this. And because we were very well aware that then we would get into conflict with, with the state power and we would lose that uh, conflict uh, very quickly. We would be uh, defeated in, in a very short time. So we decided to make it uh, on the cover. And the idea was to raise as much money as uh, possible. So we didn't plan on case crime. When we want to do a crime, it should be that we get a large amount of money because it is not uh, worth, uh, worth the risk. So we tried to uh, plan it very well and to educate uh, ourselves uh, to do it uh, very uh, well. And, and there was another aspect of this because it was also gaining uh, knowledge and gaining skills um, for our own future uh, struggles. We know we learned how to organize, we learned how to communicate secretly, we learned how to steal cars and how to, a lot of different kinds of techniques, how to forge documents and how to this and how to that. There was a lot of how to pick locks. And there was a lot of skills which which were needed for that, which was also uh, needed for the organs for the organization in a longer perspective. So it was very important for us that we were not an express locomotive on 30 meters of rail. We, we wanted to protect the organization. We didn't want to blow our cover. So and actually, we we managed to keep the organization for. Maybe 20 years um, because of this very security minded strategy. So, you kept it for 20 years, what the most publicized exploits involved, I guess, robbing a bank. How did you guys manage to escape despite doing these kind of heists and things like that? It was careful planning and it was from for every new strike or every new action, uh, you have to change the methods, how you steal the car, the methods, how you do the things, so that police don't compare and, uh, the different uh, actions and don't get more and, and more information. You, you you have to variate your methods, uh, and you have to and you have to plan your escape, and you have to also. How you move around in the city, you, you had to uh, you had to plan a lot on how to you are sure that you are not uh, followed by the police. And so there, there is many kinds of methods. For for instance, there is a, a huge hospital here in Copenhagen, and it's a huge building. And underground, there is a lot of tunnel connected to other buildings. Uh, and there's a lot of in and out doors of this uh, hospital. And it's a 
very good place to you go into one entrance at the hospital and then you just turn around two or three times and, and go around and then you can go out down in the tunnels and you come out in a completely different way and it's extremely difficult to follow people uh, in such a place. And we have a lot of this kind of places where the police would lose trace very easily and, and without getting suspicious that you wanted to get them off your train. So so it's a that, that's a lot of the methods which we developed to secure our cars this year. And a lot of also safe houses and, and so on and so on. You also managed to rob the Swedish army depository, right? Yeah, yeah. But now that you had so much illegal money, how did you manage to send that money to liberation struggles? Like that probably was not easy. It was just with uh, with the couriers. At that time, it wasn't cool cash. It, it was just the smuggling them out of the country. But some some of the liberation movements, they were not knowing who we were because we were not sure of their security in, in their end. So they just received the money without knowing who they come from. Some liberation movements we did trust and had good contacts with them. And some of them we didn't know that well that we could trust with the contact persons and the, and the organization as such. Huh? And I guess in 1986, there was a Christmas weekend robbery where you ended up yielding almost 4 million kroners for the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, and, so you guys did this for 20 years, and eventually the police caught up with you. What did you feel when the police caught up with you and you were arrested and tried? Uh, <laughs> it was not a good feeling, but uh, yeah, I just no comments. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, and I guess you spent some time in prison. Did that change your perspective on a- any of the struggles? Or yes, yes, of, yes, of course, because we, I, I, I was in prison in, in '89, and uh, at that time. You know, it was also the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was also this, the, it was uh, the, the end of the Soviet Union. And it was also, actually, it had been the end of the revolutionary third world struggle was also uh, declining and had been declining for a long time. So it was time to think about what was going on and how to continue. And uh, I really, I've got a lot of time in the day to think about that. So uh, it was a turning point, uh, of, of course. But I think that actually, the, if you see it, the, the turning point in the world was actually in 75, in the breakthrough of neoliberalism, which was the big counter-offensive from the capital. I think that from 65 to 75, the anti-imperialist struggle was very strong. And also in the center, capitalism also had problems with the working class, which was demanding higher and higher wage and so on. And it culminated in, in the oil crisis, which was also kind of a third world demand for higher price for raw materials. So it was a kind of big uh, crisis for capitalism. And they uh, made this counter-offensive in, in terms of the neoliberalism, which was very, very uh, successful. The first part of the counter-offensive uh, was to secure the home base in Europe, America, to weaken the state's capability to regulate and to uh, control uh, investments and to weaken the the trade unions and so on. It was Reagan and it was Margaret Thatcher. And when they have weakened national state capability to control and regulate the capital, they could launch globalization. And then you have this enormous new wave of imperialism where hundreds of millions of workers in the, in the global south was in, incorporated in, in global uh, capitalism, the opening up of China 
foreign investment in the United States. So it was the new wave of the imperialism. So it was a big turning point. What I've noticed now is that basically things have gotten worse. I can't remember when the last time the U.S. and even Europe has not been at war. So why did things get this bad? And is it too late? Too late for what? To fix it. Um, It depends on on us. I I, I think that, that actually the objective conditions for transformation it's very, very good. I, I, I think that capitalism is in huge struggles uh, now, and it even got worse with Corona and the situation, but also before it is in huge uh, problems, and it had no strategy to get compact. If you see what is the choice in, in America, the choices between Trump and, and Joe Biden, and, and Joe Biden is not a charismatic new person who can get a revival of, of neoliberalism he's, he's without any new ideas and, and Trump is a lunatic. So I, I think that America is, is in big trouble, the US is, is in big trouble and also if you look at Europe, the European Union is also in, in very big, in big trouble. There, there's uh, anti-Union strong movements in, in every European uh, country. And I was thinking that the European Union was getting stronger and stronger and, and stronger, and now it's completely in trouble. So I, I think that, that capitalism has huge, uh, huge problem. And now with this uh, coronavirus and, and this, they're pumping out billions of billions of dollars into the economy without any production to, to back it. They are piling up debts which will threaten to uh, explode in a big crash. This corona will slide into an uh, economic crisis uh, without historical tendency in, in uh, capitalism. So in that way, the objective situation for transformation is, is very good. The problem is the subjective uh, forces in our organization, uh, of course. One thing that... Actually, I think that may have had a strangely positive effect is both the way Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders were cheated and internally sabotaged. Is there a limit on a Western democracy's ability to be democratic? Like, is there a facade in Western democracy that shows that it's not really a democracy? I, I've never th- uh, thought it was uh, real uh, democracy. It's a kind of it's it's because it's not uh, an economic. Uh, it's a democracy. It's 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 a political economy. For, but I I think that the reason why Corbyn and and Sanders uh, was ruled out, it's actually I don't think it's in in the interest of capitalism. I think it would be much wiser for them. To kind of because conservative, neoconservative, and, and fascism is not going to help with capitalism. The, the problem for, for capitalism is now that production apparatus, the hardware is completely globalized in global production uh, change and in transnational uh, companies. And it cannot easily be rolled back. You know, they, the car production, clothes production, it will not return to uh, America. Uh, computers will not be produced in America. They will be produced still in Asia, and especially in, uh, in China. Industrial production has gone down and down in, in America and Europe and going up and up in Asia. And it cannot be rolled back very easily because of the difference in, in wages simply. So this is the economic side, but the political side, the, the response to liberalism was this uh, nationalism from Brexit and uh, so on. And this is putting rubble in the machinery of neoliberalist uh, economy. It's a more political crisis than it's an economic crisis. This nationalism is very destructive to neoliberalism. And this is the big uh, problem. 
And I think that actually the social democrats would be more positive towards this kind of, of modern globalization or modern or kind of they could find some kind of common ground, but not the right wing nationalists. They are actually destructive to uh, the transnational companies. It's a big problem for the I think. So why is there such a big rise in that kind of nationalism? We've seen it in Poland, Hungary, even Britain, Norway. Denmark. Denmark and America. Like, so what is causing this kind of neo-fascist nationalism and how do we fight it? I think it, it's because of the huge difference in the world between the global south and, and, the, and the global north. It's caused by the decline of industrial uh, work in the global north and the fear of the losing welfare and the fear of the immigrants. Uh, so all these consequences of the globalization have caused this cycling uh, populist nationalism. And um, I think it's, it's very difficult to fight it or to, uh, to stop it. Uh, it's necessary to, of course, do uh, our best to uh, do it, but it's a difficult and, and often uh, struggle. And I think that it will not go on forever because it's not the solution. Uh, this right wing, uh, Trump will not, uh, or Brexit, or they, they cannot produce a better life or better living standard for the people. Sooner or later, they will be tired of them because they offer no solutions. But I guess what I'm worried about is that there is a climate crisis coming along. So can the left in the world take reins so that we choose socialism as opposed to barbarism? Mm. And that's what I'm really worried about is, can we get it done on time? Mm. Uh, that's I. Uh, that's uh, I. I, I, th- I think that this kind of catastrophe is now we have this uh, more or less catastrophe of Corona, but there can be other kinds of uh, catastrophes. I can see two types, also uh, kind of climate, uh, different kind of climate uh, catastrophes, but also. I think also we should not rule out the catastrophe of a kind of nuclear war because the rivalry in the world is, is also uh, increasing. There's a spillover of this uh, nationalism into global privacy. Now, uh, I think it's, it's the mountain between China and America, but also between America and Russia or Europe and, and Russia. So there's also, so there's three kinds of catastrophes. There's this pandemics, and there's the climate, and there's uh, uh, war. And all these kind of, of catastrophes can also lead into kind of lifeboat socialism because it's the only uh, solution to this kind of big catastrophes. Has no first world war led to the Russian Revolution and the second uh, world war also led to a lot of uh, the Chinese Revolution and and also to revolutionary upheaval. So this kind of major catastrophes can lead to sudden change also. So a lot of people in the West don't even know where to begin, I guess. Do you have any advice for Americans? Where do they start their struggle? (laughs) I think that that's the there's both organizational things and there's also, of course, the uh, political things. I, I think that one thing we have lost uh, since the, the 70s is our organizational uh, capabilities. Uh, it's, uh, I have seen it to the 99 and to the struggle uh, against WTO and, and also a lot of struggles in North Africa and the Middle East, the, the so-called uh, revolutionary spring and so on. And just before the corona, there, there have been a lot of uh, spontaneous re- revolution in Iraq and Lebanon and in Argentina, a lot of different, in Hong Kong, a lot of different uh, places, but they don't have organizational uh, foundation, they don't have the common uh, vision, they don't have the organization knowledge. It, it, they rely on social media and they rely on boost networks and they rely on 
occupying a square for some time and relying on street fights and, and so on. The organizations of the, of the, of the 70s had some much stronger visions and much stronger organizational capability and could fight in different areas. They could have, you know, coordinate uh, legal struggles with underground struggles and, and they had they were much much uh, stronger so i think that we have to prepare ourselves organizatorical to the common struggle because it will be dramatic and if we don't prepare our organizations uh, for that uh, struggle it could be easily uh, cost uh, also because the state had become much more advanced in their surveys and uh, counter-revolution capabilities. So we have to prepare a lot on the organization level. And we have to think in a, I think in a five-year scale instead of a half-year scale and, or next week. And, and we have to think in a longer-term scale that the organizations are. We have to think in a, I think of, of a, in a five-year scale, and not in next year. Compared, and, and, and we have also to, we lack a lot of uh, common, strong vision of what should come after the capitalism. I think because it's like it's just, as I said, it's. I don't think that capitalism will survive this uh, century. But the problem is that it could. It could implode, it could uh, collapse uh, without a revolutionary takeover. It could just uh, collapse into something worse or into a chaos. And this is the, the problem. Uh, and to avoid this problem, it takes a strong vision of the future, what we want. And it takes much better organizations that, than we have now. And this is the, this is the two main times. In America, a lot of the left don't even understand like there's a lot of education but yes there is no organization most of it needs to be built from the ground up where can people buy your book that you've written about the struggles and revolutions and imperialism uh, they can buy it from this uh, canadian uh, publishing house in montreal uh, he has a publishing house in montreal so uh, they can buy it uh, online Thank you so much for coming. We are very honored to have you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of the evening. Bye, bye, bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.